0: live I'm Graham Lynch and welcome to the show we have a uh, special a breached abbreviate, abbreviated edition this week um, for no particular reason other than uh, our um, proposed guest star came down with some bad flu and lost his voice so unfortunately he won't, we won't name him uh, for the sake of privacy. But uh, it, it does mean that we're, we're down a guest this week. So um, we're also missing Rowan Pearce, our executive editor, who is on a holiday in Tasmania. So it's Simon Ducks and I holding the fort together. Hi, Simon. Let's hope we can do this, Hey, Graham? I'm nervous. I hope you are too. Um, let's start off with a very, very interesting story you had uh, this week um, about the... I guess, the fledgling Australian satellite launch industry. And they're very, very concerned about a proposed new fee regime which may be applied on them.
1: That's right, Graham. Uh, As you know, the uh, Standing Committee inquiry into developing Australian space industry, it's now uh, hearing public hearings, and uh, it's going to essentially decide the future shape and uh, potentially the future investment into the Australian space industry. And one of the key things that's developing out of this is what the future Australian Space Agency is going to look like. Um, you know, it has a particular role at the moment. Uh, it's very involved in pushing STEM And uh, it's also supporting and uh, helping redirect uh, certain monies that come through in the way of grants and so on. But obviously, uh, one of the other key things uh, that it does is it has the uh, licensing and charging uh, regime for space activities. And uh, they've just literally put out a uh, consultation where they're looking at uh, getting some feedback from the industry around uh, the particular model that they have, which is for partial cost recovery of fees. Now, this is, as as the ASA will point out, is Australian government uh, strategy to get cost recovery on uh, certain items. And uh, the way they do it is that if the ASA is doing the particular work, uh, then uh, the, uh, they will end up absorbing those costs. And uh, so uh, the government would also potentially be absorbing those costs. But on uh, if the work is outsourced, uh, then this work will actually be paid for by the launch companies and uh, some of the uh, satellite payload companies and so on, depending on the nature of the work. And uh, So they're consulting on this, and of course, uh, Australia's new launch companies, uh, you, two specifically that I uh, chatted with were Southern Launch and Equatorial Launch. Um, the CEO at Southern Launch, Lloyd Damp, uh, was telling me that if... You look at the current fee structure, it could mean that um, the uh, launch companies are facing up to one hundred and eighty nine thousand um, dollars and beyond per launch uh, permit application now you can imagine that uh, you know that's a huge cost uh, for an industry that's just starting to get off its feet now uh, the key thing with that is that uh, Lloyd and Carly Scott over at Equatorial Launch both pointed out to me that uh, some of the rationale for all of this is because the ASA has to outsource so much of its work uh, in actually analyzing all of this, and this creates this uh, extra burden, this extra cost, and it's their preference that the ASA actually starts to look at a model of actually bringing this stuff in-house and it fits into some of the wider things that the standing committee is looking at about future investment into space. You know, the government's going to have to make a big bet here. They've got big numbers about what they want for jobs and the particular revenue in the sector, but there's also going to have to be a commitment and uh, if I remember rightly, the submission from the Space Industry Association uh, pointed out that uh, Australia currently has one of the lowest investments in the space sector per GDP of OECD countries. So I think there's going to be uh, have to be some big moves uh, on actually developing some of this essentially.
0: Okay, definitely one to watch because he uh, could definitely could stymie an industry before it even gets going if the, if the cost settings are too high. Moving on, there's another sector of the market that's definitely not been stymied, and that's data centers. And the American commercial real estate services and investment giant CBRE this week came out with a, um, a global report that says some uh, very positive things about Australia.
1: Very much so. It was uh, interesting for us to go and look at uh, the supply side and see where the investors were actually looking, because we know there's been a lot of announcements uh, on the on the data center front. So this was quite fascinating because they went and asked around 600 uh, key uh, investors. Um, some of these uh, organizations are the largest institutional real estate investors in the world and uh, looked at where they were looking to put their money. 95% of them said they're investing in data centers this year, which is, you know, quite something. And uh, the interesting thing on the back of that, that was that they were talking about the fact that 85% of them said that they've allocated more than $100 million US of equity to the data center sector, and uh, uh, 46% have allocated more than $300 million this year. So, you know, this is serious investment, and it was quite fascinating to see that Melbourne came out as one of the Asia-Pac leaders that the investors were looking at going. It uh, rated up with Shanghai and Seoul, uh, that suggesting in the secondary markets that uh, at least 10% of these respondents said that they were really looking to invest into Melbourne. Key features that they said of the Melbourne market was that you would get higher initial returns relative to other markets. It had good economic fundamentals driving the rental growth. And uh, as they uh, coined it, there was a big availability of investment opportunities. And we saw a little bit of that when uh, talking to uh, Equinix as well. Guy Danske, the CEO there, told us that uh, as far as they were concerned, Melbourne was going to be a key investor for them. They also pointed to uh, Brisbane and Perth coming along as well. And in fact, uh, CBRE's Tom Fillmore said the same. He said the initial focus is obviously... Sydney, Melbourne, uh, but then the other two uh, capitals are also going to be there as well. So it is pretty interesting. Uh, they mentioned uh, in the secondary markets around Asia Pac that there was um, a limited supply in some of the emerging markets. Uh, they pointed out specifically the Philippines and uh, also Indonesia uh, as uh, two big areas that they could be looking and uh, that also plays into uh, the story that we wrote uh, fairly recently about turbidite appearing to invest in the secondary market. So you can see that people are are actually realizing that there's some investment there and uh, getting these business models up and running and one of the key things I'd uh, say uh, to that was that uh, 28% of respondents in their survey suggested that there was a limited number of qualified management partners which made their investments difficult. So you can understand why. If you've got a little bit of data center now, there's some people right there ready with your checkbooks.
0: Very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, Moving on, uh, one of the big four accounting firms, Deloitte, uh, turned their attention to the telecommunications market this week and and particularly the interplay between telecommunications and the uh, hyperscale sector. What do they have to say, Simon?
1: Yes, it was interesting because uh, uh, this was uh, authored or co-authored by um, the consulting leader there in TMT, Peter Corbett, and he was the, the guy that came out uh, I think, uh, two years ago and suggested that uh, most of the operators in Australia will not be able to charge a premium for 5G, which has uh, also come to pass. So, you know, when uh, Deloitte are putting f- forward what they're suggesting for the marketplace, it's always good to have a bit of a look. And this time, although they were a little bit down on mobile, uh, they were essentially talking up how much cloud and edge uh, is going to be uh, driving in Australia versus uh, some of the other places around the world. Now, if you can imagine, they're suggesting that uh, cloud services are going to double in value by 2025. And they reckon a lot of this is being driven by uh, the public sector. Um, There's a lot of initiatives at federal and state level um, where governments have been suggesting that they really have to push and uh, grow um, and adopt cloud uh, strategies. And uh, the key thing with that is uh, they're suggesting uh, that roughly you've got about 20% of enterprise data uh, is created and processed outside traditional centralized data centers at the moment. But by 2025, they imagine that's going to be around 75%. So this is going to be quite a shift in how that's actually going to fit between what the telcos are doing with providing data services uh, and how that work with the hyperscalers. And you know we've covered that a few times about that dynamic. And essentially, uh, Peter was saying that these guys are gonna have to partner and partner well uh, because uh, the hyperscalers are gonna have a very good story to tell on the enterprise front. And uh, because of that, uh, the telcos could lose out a little bit of business there. Um, just because of the way that uh, the partnerships could form, that the hyperscaler becomes the key partner there. One of the things uh, he mentioned as well on the intelligent uh, edge size was that the telcos will have an opportunity to combine with 5G and uh, do uh, gaming-on-the-go type applications. So interestingly, uh, which feels a bit counterintuitive, He thought that the edge compute uh, early uh, successes for the telco industry were a little bit more focused on the consumer side. And uh, so uh, if we look at uh, what they were talking about on the mobile side... Uh he, he gave the opinion that it was a fairly flat market in Australia. Um, if you look at uh, the uh, Aussie uh, consumers are holding on to their devices longer, it's 81% are using a phone that's more than a year old, compared to uh, 76% in 2018. Uh, uh, device sales dropped 15% in the last quarter. And so there's no big surge in device uh, purchases. Uh, obviously, there was a bit of a bump up when the iPhone uh, 12 came out. But uh, he thinks that the mobile operators in response are going to do three things. They're going to look at um, pushing trade in and upgrade programs to encourage Australians to adopt the very latest technology. And I think we've seen that a little bit in the offers of the big three. Uh, the other thing is he suggests suggested this, we're going to see some more sub-500 5G devices available from a range of manufacturers, and that'll open up 5G to uh, more of the market, essentially. And uh, so uh, the final thing that he was suggesting was that Um, they're going to uh, include 5G access in the higher premium uh, plans, and we're we're already seeing this. So he thinks we're going to see a little bit more of that. Uh, And uh, he said there is a continuing resistance of uh, the users to pay any sort of premium for 5G. Now, Graham, you stepped in for Owen this week, and you had a couple of interesting stories as well. First up, new people at the head of telecom regulation at the ACCC.
0: Yeah. Um, so so quite quite a few changes. So actually, three three major changes. The first is that um, there's a new commissioner who, who's come on to, I guess, the ACCC board, for want of a better term. Her name is Anna Brakey. Um, she joined at the end of last year. And uh, she, she has a lot of experience in areas such as energy, water and transport. She worked for Frontier Economics as an economist and IPART, which is the New South Wales pricing regulator. So she's come into the ACCC and straight away is the chair of the communications committee, which normally makes her the commissioner in charge of telecommunications. Now, this is a practice the ACCC used to um, uh, indulge in many years ago. They had a dedicated commissioner. Uh, his name was Ed Willett for many years. But that the practice sort of seemed to fall a bit into disuse. But now they appear to have resurrected her. So what, what it effectively means is that the chair, Rod Sims, who's obviously a very busy man, can delegate some of those top-level functions to one of his other commissioners. Um, and she can focus a lot more on those issues from, from a, a board level, which obviously, um, obviously is a good thing from a, a governance point of view. Now, the second change um, is a new executive general manager of infrastructure regulation, which is the division which looks after telecoms. And her name is Sarah Proudfoot. Now, She's long been associated uh, with these circles. She was... Um, a senior, at GM level the Australian Energy Regulator, which, which is affiliated with the ACCC. She was there for nine years. And actually going back to before 2011, she was at the ACCC as the Director of Small Business and Outreach. So um, um, Sarah has a lot of experience in this space. And uh, basically she's now in charge of the division, which, which looks after network regulation now she replaces a fellow who's an absolute veteran uh, of the sector, Michael Cosgrave. He's was with the ACCC for twenty five years, and uh, as I wrote this week, he's been at the centre of nearly all the significant telecom regulatory debates of the twenty first century. I mean, you really can't talk about what's happened in telecom regulation in Australia without without talking about Michael. Anyway, he's he's um moved to a slightly different position in the last few months. He's the chief advisor to the commission in the field of infrastructure regulation. And my understanding is that in a couple of months he'll be retiring. I'm not sure what he's doing next, um, but we'll be hoping to find out before he goes and have a chat with him, hopefully. Quite a few big uh, changes there at the ACCC. And uh, Graham. you
1: also had a piece about NBN getting close to the Greater Sydney Commission, uh, which has the planning responsibility for Sydney and the new city around the second airport in particular.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting that there's a backstory here because the NBN hasn't actually been particularly close to planning authorities in the past. And the Greater Sydney, Greater Sydney Commission is an extreme example of a planning commission that doesn't necessarily have equivalents in other places. It has a, a, a kind of mega power for Sydney. Um, and its big project is the city they're developing around the second airport, which incidentally got a name this week, Bradfield. <laughs> Very original. Um but the reason NBM wants to do this is because if you look back over the last few years at a lot of the urban planning programs, they don't actually talk a lot about telecommunications or broadband. And in fact, one of the things I identified in in writing this story was it just a, a Greater Sydney region uh, plan from just two years ago, and it, it came in at a couple of hundred pages. Uh, had precisely one mention of telecommunications, and that was the need to have a, a mitigation plan in case Sydney floods. <laughs> what are you going to do about the Telecom network? So it hasn't been a big part of the, the radar. But Stephen Roo, the CEO of NBN, thinks it's time that NBN be part of these discussions. And I, I, I suspect what's motivated him is the COVID-19 pandemic and the central role that NBN played um, in keeping the economy moving through that period with work from home. And and Stephen appears to um, certainly have some thinking about how it changes things like you know, daily commuter traffic and you know, more people working at home. Uh, there, there may be uh, new approaches needed in, in how you, you plan new cities. And, of course, it, it's also important for MBN to start these dialogues because now they've completed the overall build of the network. Uh, most of their future opportunities lie in greenfield developments, and, and particularly places where they're building new cities. and Bradfield is probably the prime example in Australia right now of a new city being built. So it's pretty important for them. And of course, they've they've they've, they've backed up. has backed up. Uh, you know, it's 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 words with deeds, and it's created a couple of the fighting funds um, with a few hundred million dollars for co investment with both state governments and local governments to build new infrastructure, and particularly um, fibre networks in places that might not ordinarily have been earmarked to get them. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting to see MBN going in this direction. Um, it, it, it's important for their future growth, and clearly it's a desirable point of view that uh, the country's preeminent broadband operator be part of the conversation when we're talking about urban planning. Absolutely. Thanks, Graham, And thank you, Simon. And uh, just a note for all our, our uh, listeners, um, we're taking a break for a couple of weeks because I'm going on personal leave and then it's Easter. And we're going to refresh and recharge and we will be back bigger and more bushy-tailed than ever in a couple of the weeks. So see you then.